This is an ABC podcast. Hi from David Rutledge. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. Uh, Great to have your company. This week and next week, we're talking about one of the key figures in modern politics, modern economics, perhaps modern philosophy, although the extent to which he can be called a philosopher is open to debate. That's a debate we're about to have. He's Karl Marx, the 19th century German political theorist who has at various times been sanctified on the political left and demonised on the political right and whose ideas are having something of a moment right now as the injustices and the shaky foundations of market capitalism become ever more apparent in the era of COVID and climate change and increasing wealth inequality. My guest this week is Terrell Carver. He's Professor of Political Theory at the University of Bristol. He's been writing about Marx and the many incarnations of Marxism for over 40 years, and it's a great pleasure to be having this conversation. Terrell, welcome to the program. Uh, Thank you. I'm I'm really delighted to be uh, invited onto this program and to have a chance to talk to your audience about Karl Marx. I want to begin with this question of whether or the extent to which Marx could be described as a philosopher. And he's most often thought of as a revolutionary, as a political activist. He seems to have considered himself to be something of a scientist. In what sense can we say that he was a philosopher? Because he he trained as a philosopher as a young man, but then he moved away from academic philosophy, didn't he? Um, Yes, thanks. I think that's uh, exactly the right question to ask to get started. So, Uh, In fact, he had a classical grammar school education, which had huge amounts of religion, uh, orthodox doctrinal Christianity in it, uh, as well as the classical languages, Latin and Greek. And he went off to university to study jurisprudence so that he could be a lawyer like his father. So what happened at uh, university uh, was that he got involved uh, with teachers and students in philosophy. So disciplinary boundaries were not strongly drawn in those days. Actually, uh, philosophy, law, history, jurisprudence, and quote, science, unquote, as much as there was, was all essentially the same kind of thing. So in order to understand what's going on in German universities uh, in the late 1830s and early 1840s, when Marx was a student, one needs to know that there was no such place as Germany. There were uh, over three dozen uh, German states and state-let, that is, um, kingdoms, grand duchies, principalities, uh, places ruled by the prince archbishop, all these little states uh, and branches of the churches were all the same thing. So we're looking at uh, a place where the tension sparked by the American and the French revolutions uh, were uh, on the boil uh, in university departments, but extremely unpopular with uh, the rulers. So uh, anyone who was venturing into those realms of uh, critique or what you might call critical theory now, or just thinking uh, that they could have some share in politics and that there should even be political discussion, this was defined as terrorism. So you were run out of the university, run out of your job uh, when they could find you. Uh, Famous academics had to leave the country and set up uh, in Switzerland or retire, and that's what happened to Marx's tutor. 
Um, so his ambitions to be a free-thinking intellectual rather than uh, a lawyer got derailed at that point. So we're not specifically in the realm of philosophy here, although from today's perspective, that's what it looks like. So those political discussions uh, about what the state and society and citizenship and life are supposed to be like took place within a philosophically coded framework. Uh, and Hegel was the, uh, the famous uh, latest German philosopher of the time. He'd only recently died, and he was read in two different ways. He was read by the state as a very conservative uh, philosopher, um, and they weren't wholly on side even with that because he wasn't obviously orthodoxly Christian. So the state was embarked on a project of Christianizing him, whereas the liberal intellectuals, influenced by the French revolutions of 1789 uh, and 1830, were busy reading him as a progressive. So that's the milieu into which uh, Marx plunged himself, much to his father's disgust. Um, and he soon realized in that climate that, uh, along with his tutor, he uh, couldn't have an academic career, and he uh, wandered uh, into a little bit of journalism, as it was in the time, with some progressive businessmen in Cologne. So um, I'll leave us at uh, that, and we can move on to his later career if you'd like to, David. Well, let's just stick with that for a minute. Can you tell me more about Marx's relationship with Hegel and with Hegelianism? Well, Everybody at the time um, who had any interest in intellectual life had to be involved with Hegel. He was the local philosopher. He was German. He was uh, regarded as uh, far better than the uh, rather primitive empiricist uh, philosophies that were going on in uh, England and France. So it's a heyday of German philosophy, and you had to be involved with Hegel. Marx was not very special. Uh, and actually not very specially involved. For him, the whole thing was political. Uh, as I was saying, the state was using Hegel, so that's why Marx had to be involved with people who were questioning that reading of Hegel and therefore questioning the state and questioning the uh, church and the role of religion in understanding the world uh, and in maintaining the social order. So uh, rather famously, if we think back to um, 1789, the revolution secularized the churches. Uh, they threw out the monks and the nuns. They tipped the bodies of the saints into the sewer, uh, and they set up temples of reason. So if we come on from that uh, as the image of 1789, we can see instantly uh, why and how the rulers of Marx's time, even in the late 1830s, were terrified of the whole idea of popular participation in politics, of constitutionalism, uh, and of people voting for things, um, including voting for representatives. No one in these German states and statelets in the Austrian Empire voted for anything. And of course, if we're even going to talk about voting and participation in politics, we're only talking about the participation of men, certainly not women, and only men of property. And it's those propertied men who were trying to get a foot in the door, who were running the newspaper in Cologne 
that Marx joined up with in 1842 when he was just 24. Well, this is a a good context, I guess, in which to bring up that famous quote from Marx from one of his philosophical theses on Feuerbach, in which he writes that uh, philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. The point is to change it. What's he getting at there? I mean, can we read this uh, as an assertion of the primacy of a materialist view of the world over against the realm of ideas? What does he mean? Um, Well, I think it's actually quite easy to say if um, you read those philosophical theses. From my point of view, those are the only writings of Marx from the time he's in his very early 20s, uh, right through his career, that are actually couched as philosophy. What Marx is saying in that uniquely philosophical work um, is that activism is the point of doing anything, and doing things requires thinking about things. So we're not arguing a philosophical thesis here in traditional terms of idealism versus materialism. Um, We are hearing what you might call a clarion call to get involved uh, with the real world as it was developing in his time, uh, as he could see it developing along with businessmen on the newspaper. Um, And in my view, uh, the crucial moment in his life is when he walks into that newspaper office, not when he started reading Hegel. I think that's very much a construction from the much later point of view, where people uh, assumed that reading Hegel, you were doing philosophy and you were arguing a philosophical thesis. Marx wanted to get his hands dirty uh, politically Uh, with a kind of alternative, radical, underground, clandestine, uh, semi-public group of people who were trying to change the political and the economic setup because they could see industrialization uh, and uh, the poverty of the working classes on the horizon and the profit-making of the commercial classes already underway. Well, Marx's most famous work, of course, is Capital, but it's a notoriously difficult read. What's a good way into Marx? Well, these days, and then uh, by these days, I mean since the late 1960s, uh, the approaches to Marx has been very largely through the so-called early manuscripts or Paris manuscripts, manuscripts of 1844, sometimes called economic and philosophical writings. So this is of the the kind of proto-origin, the the kind of first draft of what uh, eventually became Capital Volume 1, published in 1867. So we're now back in 1842 when he uh, joins up with the newspaper and gets involved with people who are doing political economy or uh, therefore interested in what we call economics from a practical business profit-making trading point of view. So we're moving on through uh, 1843 uh, and 1844, and he's writing up his first thoughts uh, on this subject. So this is what's going on in those manuscripts, and uh, they became popular in the later 1960s because it was a Marx that wasn't yet capital, and it was a much easier read for liberal arts uh, students, for philosophy students, um, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, and today. 
Capital is quite a difficult and abstract uh, book to read, and I'll get on later with the reading strategy. But uh, the uh, economic and philosophical manuscripts uh, have been the way into Marx that people have taken. Unfortunately, they've been read in a much more philosophical way than an economic way. And many uh, commentators and readers have read them as a commentary on Hegel. And actually, Hegel had brought uh, economics and the social structure of society into the realm of philosophy, which was itself highly controversial. And in that way, he'd brought the whole of human history, the history of civilization into philosophy. So that is what Marx is commenting on when he's commenting on Hegel. And he's got to unpick the kind of very abstract uh, and rather disembodied discussions that go on in Hegel and his followers and bring it down to earth, which was his phrase uh, at the time. That is, let's connect uh, these very abstract ideas about human progress down to actual politics on the ground. And Marx was very much on the radical left wing, get your hands dirty, end of that, saying if we're going to come down to the ground, it's just not um, simply a case of uh, people being able to talk about politics uh, and being able to choose a few representatives through some public process, but it actually means we have to engage with the way everybody in society gets their living, because that's where human life actually is. So that's what's going on in that way. And it takes a little bit of imagination now to see that as economics, because economics, um, since Marx's day, since the 1870s, 80s, and 90s, has uh, retreated in many cases into a rather abstract realm of propositions, uh, mathematical uh, logics, uh, formulae, uh, policy-making strategies uh, and the like. You've, you've said, though, that capital is in part a, a work of satire, or at least it has a satirical agenda of some kind. In what sense do you mean? Well, Marx is actually a great stylist. Uh, and if you get into the book and read it carefully um, and, you know, uh, try to have a sense of humour, some of it is seriously hilarious. But you kind of have to get into the uh, genre of satire at uh, the time. So there's quite a lot of satire on foolish people who take capitalists and capitalism at face value and for seeing the upsides only and minimizing the downsides. So he's satirizing the progressiveness, saying, that this is going to make uh, everything better for everybody. So the satire uh, occurs in saying this is a shallow view, it minimizes poverty, it doesn't take human beings seriously, and it's a kind of Panglossian view of how everything's going to get better for everybody over the generations. This is The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge, speaking this week with Terrell Carver from the University of Bristol. We're talking about Karl Marx, a thinker who's been claimed by many political movements over the past 150 years, not all of whom have been interested in reading Marx in his historical context, but that's what we're doing this week. 
Well, let's take a, a swerve into the 20th century at this point and the the history of disastrous real-world experiments in, in establishing a Marxist polity, if we look at Soviet Russia, China, any number of nations in the global south. And on, on one hand, from the political right, you get the explanation that this is just the intrinsic hopelessness of left-wing politics. And then from the left, you often get the notion that these disasters are all down to a misreading of Marx. Is it possible, do you think, to strip away all this history and arrive at a, a definitive or, or an authentic Marxism that stays true to the founding father? Would we even want to do that? Well, I think that's actually an easy one. All one has to do is avoid anachronism. So <laughs> Marx died in 1883. Um, and uh, he was a political activist, but overwhelmingly dedicated to democratic uh, participation. Uh, and democratic participation for him was on the model of the principles of the French Revolution of 1789 and 1830, and the revolutions of 1848, in which he took a personal part as an activist, journalist, pamphleteer. Uh, he actually traveled over the German states and as far east as Vienna and the Austrian Empire, stirring up popular participation to create uh, unified nation states uh, rather than neo-medieval monarchies, grand duchies, and things like that, and uh, internal empires, uh, to create unified nation states with proper written constitutions, uh, with a franchise, and representative and responsible government. He was 100% for universal brackets, male, you know, closed brackets, uh, suffrage. And Marx's hope was always that the working class sufficiently agitated through activist politics would get on board and vote for their own uh, interests. So I think all we have to do is avoid anachronism there, really, and see how other people along the way, uh, particularly after the death of Engels in the 1890s, when German socialism and the Socialist Party of the then unified or now unified uh, Germany of the 1890s wants to get political traction uh, with something like a mass male uh, electorate, and it's useful to have a founding father. And he's selectively read and selectively quoted uh, as a great thinker. He's pictured uh, along with Engels, uh, and he starts to get political traction. This is taken up by other revolutionaries in other places, not least uh, Russia. China, eventually Vietnam, all over the world, any number of places, uh, South America, uh, Mexico, you name it. Uh, he's taken up as a hero of the revolution. And then his name is put to all kinds of organizations and decisions with which he not only had nothing to do, but which in his life, he never really organized that kind of setup. Yeah, well, it, it's important to remember, isn't it, that he predicted the advent of communism, but he never set out a blueprint for it, right? Well, I think the notion of prediction is a bit problematic. Marx was an agitator, so one rhetorical way of agitating uh, is to say, hey, this is going to come to pass. <laughs> and so, so uh, 
let's let's get on board and make it happen all the sooner. And actually, his uh, revolutionary uh, rhetoric uh, is always in that mode. And he's a revolutionary because he's defined as that by the people who are against popular participation in government at all. So what we would now consider pretty normal ideas of representative responsible government and constitutionalism uh, and governmental accountability and rule of law, you know, independence of government, that was, uh, all of that thinking was repressed in the uh, German states and stateless. It wasn't at all popular uh, in the France of the 1830s and later until we get into the period of the uh, Third Republic after the 1870s. And it was um, highly controversial in uh, Victorian Britain, um, only just tolerated and, of course, repressed uh, in the national empires that the French and British constructed. Uh, and the empire that Germany tried to construct much later in the 1890s uh, begin- and beginning of the 20th century. So Marx is a revolutionary in that sense, and it, it took participation in politics and an incredible amount of violence to struggle against those uh, repressions along the line. So uh, if you were for all those things, you were defined as a revolutionary, and he was defined in that way. So it's important to um, have a a realistic historic assessment as to what's going on and not to minimize uh, the kinds of violence uh, that was caused really by repressive forces resisting those uh, who wanted to bring on board the uh, kind of mass politics uh, that we have today and to get it properly set up and indeed to maintain it. Well, just to wrap things up, Terrell, I'm talking next week, as you know, with August Nimtz from the University of Minnesota about black Marxism. And can we just close with some comments on that? Because, of course, black Marxism comes wrapped up in a with a critique of Marx that identifies a um, an insufficiency or a, a, an inadequacy of racial analysis in his work. So just by way of a, a, a throw to next week's discussion, how do you read Marx on race? Well, that's um, a good one to ask at um, this particular point, because it's really all about history and how history is an activity in the present and how our construction of the past is a product of what we think is important uh, in the present and how we uh, angle what we write and what we want to think about and therefore what we like to find in history and what we sometimes tell people off for, for not addressing in the past. So on the one hand, I would say that this perspective that one sees in part eight of Capital at the end on uh, accumulation um, very much includes the slavery that is developed uh, through European conquest and the commodification of the what goes on uh, through exploitation in the conquered territories in the Americas and all the way around through Africa into Southern Asia and out into Oceania. So it's a global project. And in part eight, the exploitation of black people from Africa in terms of their forced 
entry into extreme forms of commodification via wage labor at zero wages, uh, with a lot of persecution and um, suffering and murder, uh, which was legalized. Um, that that is actually part of the story, and as actually mentioned, it's just the extreme form of wage labor uh, forced dispossession uh, that Marx is exactly talking about. Uh, he doesn't spend a huge amount of time on it because capital is a work written in German for a German audience. Germany, as I explained, was not a country, never mind having an empire, and he's not writing for people who are rightly concerned with the uh, erasure and marginalization of this story in the Anglophone context. Marx is also, in part, a directly uh, addresses settler societies and those who uh, big that up and uh, argue for the marginalization of indigenous people and the import of labor into uh, Australia in particular. And he has a satirical laugh at uh, those who argued for the importation of convicts and uh, other labor into Australia uh, in a property system that would prevent them going off to uh, do subsistence. Uh, and he says, ha, 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 they um, you know, really admit they would have preferred slavery, but unfortunately by the 1860s, uh, it was uh, made illegal in the British Empire. So I just say there's much more going on in Marx about black slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. And ultimately, there's a, a direct opening to black Marxism. One shouldn't underestimate that. And actually, if you go back through his writings, even back to the 1840s, um, this whole process is mentioned. And it's interesting in the 1840s, back in this um, you know, exclusively German and French context of the time and for the German audience um, that Marx is writing for, that he, he, he gives a little lecture in one of his works on 1847 on black slavery in Suriname. So uh, he actually knew about it. He just doesn't sort of big it up or foreground it because, as I was saying, that wasn't something that was on the boil with the target audience that he was addressing at the time. In terms of later reception, I mean, many of those who should have noticed that didn't. Uh, but I think we're at a moment now, particularly with Capital and with reading the final chapter, where there's a big opening for uh, black Marxism. And I urge people to listen to what um, August, uh, my colleague August, says about it. So thank you very much. Thank you, Terrell Carver. This has been a terrific discussion. Uh, thanks so much for coming on the program. Uh, and thank you, David. It uh, was terrific to be invited. And Terrell Carver is Professor of Political Theory at the University of Bristol. He has a very interesting and very diverse CV and list of publications, and we'll put a link to that information on the Philosopher's Zone website. And I'm David Rutledge. You can find me on Twitter at David P. Zone. As we mentioned, next week we'll be looking at racial injustice, racial capitalism, and the uptake of Marx's ideas in the black radical tradition from the early 20th century all the way through to Black Lives Matter today. I'm really looking forward to that one, and I hope you can join me. Bye for now. <laughs>